Welcome to the BadgeCast One podcast with your host, Brian Ellis, a 20-plus year veteran police leader who's dedicated to helping police officers be their highest and best. Our show aims to dive deep to deliver leadership strategies of top experts to turbocharge public safety leadership. This podcast is brought to you by the National Command and Staff College. To find out more about our team, please visit us at www.commandcollege.org. The National Command and Staff College is passionate about enhancing your leadership capabilities and building the best version of you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the BadgeCast One podcast. Today's guest is Professor Chris Dreisbach from John Hopkins University. We're going to be discussing ethics from a public safety perspective. I hope you enjoy the show. We always look forward to your feedback. And please don't forget to go to the National Command Staff College's website at www.commandcollege.org to see all the opportunities to be the best version of you. Always look forward to your feedback. Hope you enjoy the show. And thanks again for tuning in. Have a great day. Okay, well, welcome to BadgeCast One podcast. And today we have Chris Dreisbach. Professor Chris Dreisbach has over 35 years of teaching experience and is the faculty lead and director of Applied Ethics and Humanities for the Division of Public Safety Leadership at John Hopkins University School of Education. He's a frequent lecturer on ethics for federal, state, local law enforcement agencies. And uh, Chris is a man of faith. He's a priest in Maryland, author and co-author of books, articles, teaches ethics to law enforcement across the country, and someone who I know is passionate about the realm and implications of ethics in life. So it's a pleasure to have him join us today. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Brian. Uh, And if I may make one correction to that very kind introduction, Um, since you got a hold of that introduction, what used to be at the Division of Public Safety Leadership um, in the School of Education at Hopkins has morphed into something called the Master of Science in Organizational Leadership, of which I'm the director. And that happens to be at another school at Hopkins. So we've, we've moved up in the world. Fantastic. I love it. Yeah. All right. I, you know, I really want to just jump in and you start thinking about ethics. Uh, <laughs> it's a big pill to swallow. I mean, it goes from things like human rights, environmental challenges, there's corporate responsibility, uh, labor issues, uh, I mean, everything from affirmative action to whistleblowing, agriculture's involved. I mean, it seems like everywhere you look, ethics is the forefront of, of issues that we deal with on a daily basis. And, you know, I, I think we all need a good place to start because one of the things that frustrates uh, me, and I know it frustrates a lot of other people, is the amount of ethical failures you can find in leadership on a continuous basis. And so, Chris, I have to ask you, like, what's really going on with ethics? Um, uh, you know, how, how do we tackle this initially? My, my sense is that you can, you can divide people, and I, and I know we're focusing on law enforcement. You can divide law enforcement professionals, I suppose, into two very general categories. Uh, those who are committed to being ethical but encounter real challenges to that commitment and those, and I think they're in a distinct minority incidentally, those who just couldn't care less about ethics and they just want to get by. They, they want to make it through the day and then make it to retirement and you know, to heck with the rest of the world. And again, I think there are very few people like that. So the majority of people are people of goodwill who may simply not have been prepared in advance for some of the really tough moral challenges they meet. And uh, sometimes that can lead down a slippery slope. You know, you, you hear of special teams, for example, who, who coalesce uh, into a group that sets itself apart from the rest of its agency. And it, that kind of team can develop a uh, culture all its own that's hard for any one of the individuals to break. So the the people who have no interest at all in being ethical, it seems to me, should be weeded out 
systematically. So there should be systems in place, first of all, at the recruitment level, mm-hmm. so, that, so that the agency can, can at least try not to bring people like that in in the first place. Uh, but then systems in place to, to constantly assess and evaluate uh, uh, members of the agency. And uh, if, if those people clearly lack a commitment to the moral good, then it's time to remove them. And again, I think that's going to be a fairly distinct minority. The people that are left nine times out of 10 are going to know the right thing to do. Uh, so there have to be things in place to encourage them to do it. And that leaves those times where for all of the person's goodwill and experience and wisdom, they're just not sure how to handle the moral case. And so I think many of the moral failings we see happen because of those moments where a person of goodwill comes up against a moral brick wall and isn't sure how to either knock it down or climb over it. Um, Mm -hmm. That's where ethics training comes in, I think. It, It allows people to take their goodwill and at the same time sharpen their moral skills and be better prepared for those tough moments. I, so I, that's, that's a great point. I have to ask, do you think in those moments uh, we get lost in self-interest? Is, is, I mean, is, is that a barrier to sometimes the ethical challenges that we face? Yes, it's a barrier sometimes, right. Um, it, one of the things I find interesting talking to police in specific and, and public safety in general is as a profession, you've already sort of promised to set self-interest aside. You know, there are many professions where self-interest is sort of taken for granted. Um, take a CPA, for example. One imagines that a good, re- a good reason for becoming a CPA is what, what one can achieve in that profession personally, good income and social standing and what have you. And I, and I certainly don't mean to say CPAs are, are selfish or self-interested. I don't mean that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we, the public, would be so disappointed to learn that a major reason somebody became a CPA was because of the personal rewards. I think in public safety, we expect uh, a stronger commitment to the public good. And I suspect that many people who enter public safety enter it with the idea of serving others. And so the problem of self-interest is different, I think, in public safety professions, simply because of the risk you're assuming just by entering the profession. Um, Now, for the other part of your question, when, when a police professional does encounter a very difficult problem, self-interest may suddenly be of more importance. just because it's the it's it's what the person knows best. Uh, what's what's in my interest at this moment? But I still suspect that um, much of that is more of a defense mechanism than a moral failing. Right, I see that. Yeah, I think anybody that thinks of public safety, they they understand that policing and ethics. They I mean they go hand in hand. And but at the end of the day, we're people too, and uh, we're prone to falling down at times. And I mean, exactly. you, the gamut of ethics in just police life itself, there's you know, on duty versus off duty and spirit mm-hmm. of the law versus the letter of the law and uh, uh, impartial policing and profiling. Uh, and police work is really inefficient these days. I mean, everybody... I mean, it's very interesting. Um, one, it, it drives a lot of news. Uh, and, and so mistakes are exacerbated uh, at, at times. And uh, not to say that there's not actual legitimate mistakes happening, because there, there are those too. But I think most, good, uh, most cops are good. Uh, we, all, we all know that. And most good cops ask themselves a lot of different questions like, are my actions legal? Will the end result be good? Uh, you know, will it work? Is there a better, less harmful way to achieve what I'm trying to do? Uh, you know, the, I think I think a lot of decisions that are made are principled, and we're you know up against a very volatile and fast-moving environment. And I think at t- at times mistakes are going to happen, 
And this is why I think our conversation is really important is how do we ensure we are always putting our best decisions front and center? And I'm not just talking about police officers out in the field dealing with the public, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of times there's a lot of uh, ethical implications inside of our own organizations that we can really make sure that if we have a clear ethical foundation uh, to stand on that, you know, going back to the old Abraham Lincoln quote, uh, what is it? If uh, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. It's those moments that really have, uh, I, I just really hope that we can find a way to be more intentional with our ethical practices. So, um, so can you tell me, uh, if, you know, if, from your perspective, what, uh, you know, what is a good flow chart for ethics? You know, if I'm here, I am today wanting to know um, how to be more ethical or how to make sure I have ethics in the backdrop of everything that I do, um, where do I start? Uh, first of all, that's a great question. And secondly, I want to compliment you on a lot of good stuff you just said, all, all of which fits neatly into a package that you're in a fishbowl, for example, I think is a very important piece of this um, because it's that reason among others that I begin, when I, when I do the one day training, say with California Post or the Florida Department of Law Enforcement or the Senior Management Institute uh, in Boston, I always begin by assuming and welcoming a challenge to my assumption that what you do is a profession, not just a job, and that that, that alone carries an awful lot of moral weight. Um, I think you began this conversation by pointing out all the relationships a professional has, both on duty and off duty, relationship to oneself, to one's family and loved ones, to one's agency or organization, to one's community, to one's profession, uh, to nature and to the world, and and if you're religious, to your God. Um, So you're right. Uh, Cops are in a fishbowl and and that, among other reasons, is why I think they're a profession. Secondly, uh, you pointed out the many moral challenges uh, that can arise simply because of how fast-paced police work can be and how much is demanded of police when they're called to action. Um, When I first started working with police and ethics, this was back, I guess, in the, oh, around the mid-90s, maybe 1994, the very first time I talked to a group of police on my own, um, at the end of it, one of the participants came up and said, man, that was like the moral version of a Hogan's Alley. Now, at the time, I didn't know what a Hogan's Alley was, and he explained that. He said, well, we also call it a judgment range, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the point was that Since you train and retrain and certify on how to use your firearm properly and when to use it, I think there should be a moral equivalent of that, both at the academy and then in continuing education throughout throughout your career. Uh, Because the more you are able to prepare in advance for a moral challenge, the better prepared you are to meet it when it finally comes. And I think there's an assumption that uh, is, is... certainly uh, understandably human, and that is, well, I'm a, I'm a moral person, so I'm ready. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to handle moral problems, but it's, it's not like that. I mean, I also can fire a gun, but I don't know that I could fire it well, and I don't know that I'd know when to fire it and when not to. So, I mean, anybody can pick up a gun and pull the trigger, but to learn how to use a gun properly in those moments where it's essential requires training and retraining, and developing habits. And so one, one thing I would do is in addition to increasing the ethics training at, at the academy is repeat it over and over again. Uh, and, and we can talk about ways of doing that, but certainly a very quick way is to put case studies before the group. And you could even do this at roll call if you had the time to spend 10, 15 minutes on a case and get people thinking in advance about how they would respond to such a problem and why some responses would be better than others. Um, But that also means knowing what tools are available in the moral toolbox and when to use which tool. So that's one piece of my answer to your excellent question. The other piece of my answer is to remind police constantly that they've taken an oath to the Constitution. 
and that they are in effect the front line in, in, in the public's mind. They're the front line of the Constitution. You know, most of us don't have direct contact with other sworn people, congressmen, for example, or the President of the United States, who have also taken an oath to the Constitution. Our first contact with people who've taken an oath to it usually is police, whether it's personal direct contact or whether it's our seeing news about the police on you know, television or reading about them in the newspaper. And so one other thing I would do if, 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 if I were in control, God forbid, is I would remind constantly uh, police that they are in effect ministers of the Constitution mm. and that um, everything they do in this fishbowl that you've identified can be seen sooner or later. Mm. Even if the cop thinks he's not, that he's getting away with something, Generally speaking, if they're doing something wrong, it's going to surface someday. Right. And so if, if the police officer could ask, you know, at every moment of indecision, what should I do that honors my oath to the Constitution? I think that would be a huge step toward eliminating some of the problems that we uh, hear about and read about. You know, you make a really good point. And, uh, you know, what I heard you say a couple times was, um, you know, ha habits, uh, you know, habitually moving towards a better place or, or, or condition. And, you know, I think that's, that's something that's, I mean, if you look at any kind of skill, uh, you just have to do it a lot, or at least think about it a lot, uh, to, to make it really, really stick and, and where it becomes, instantaneous it's not like a conscious thought it's almost like a subconscious you know it's it's just there every time you need it and so um there's a lot of pressures on the world uh you know like i said going back into uh, earlier i think it's sometimes fairly easy to see the things that we do outside of an organization sometimes it's not always easy to see the things inside the organization where you know, ethics become a strain, whether it's picking, you know, maybe whether it's a promotional process or picking somebody for a team. And, you know, there's a lot of people factors and subjectivity that come in into play. And, but make, making sure that habitually, if the ethics are there all the time, that you don't run into problems or giving special favors to a particular constituent because, you know, you work with them uh, up a lot. I mean, there's a lot of just slides that, that, that can happen. So how, how do we habitually uh, lead people with virtue? Ah, thank you. This, now, now you've really hit home. This is, this is what I'm evangelical about when I talk to police about uh, ethics. Um, let's start with the point that the word ethics comes from the Greek word for habit. So ethos is the Greek word for habit or custom. And morality comes from the Latin word for habit or custom. That Latin word is mos, M-O-S. And so in its very word history, in its very etymology, the word ethics refers to habit. And so this goes back to an ancient Greek idea that answers your question, frankly. How do we make the people of our community ethical? And the answer is to promote develop and promote the, promote, I'm sorry, promote and develop the right habits and discourage the wrong habits. Now, most people in that world agreed that far, that that's what we should be doing. And most agreed at the time anyway, in ancient Greece, that the two best ways to do that were through education and law, legislation. So that the primary functions of legislation and education were to promote good habits and discourage bad ones. Now, where the debate really started then was what constitutes a good habit, what constitutes a bad habit. But that's a different level of debate. <clears throat> and so my first answer to your question is the ancient Greek answer, and that is to legislate uh, and educate in such a way that people, be, people develop those habits and then are constantly encouraged to develop those habits. Now, when I say legislate, I can mean something as broad as, say, federal or state legislation, or something as narrow as a particular agency's code of conduct or code of ethics. Mm -hmm. um, but I think having that resource available all the time is key to uh, 
helping people uh, develop these habits and then help them uh, sharpen those skills constantly. Yeah, that's awesome. I because th I think sometimes we forget how noble our job is, and and I I'm reminded in times when you know somebody retires and they they're given their last speech uh, in front of a roll call or a group of people within the organization on their last shift, and they and they reflect back about all the wonderful people they've worked with and the things that they've had the opportunity to do. And some of the times when I've listened to those conversations, you know, I've heard a number of them over my career. Uh, the one that really hits home and, and kind of just inspires me is the, when people just go back to day one and go, don't forget you know, where you, one, where you came from and how excited you were when you came into this, this, this profession, um, the nobility of this job. I mean, very few people, I mean, one out of, one out of every hundred people on average that apply to be a police officer become a police officer. And so uh, it, it's a, it's a big task to, to make sure that you're well equipped to handle this job and the things that you're going to face and the ethical uh, the ethical forks in the road that not are not always visible and so um, that nobility I think really has a, a way to strike uh, inspiration and 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 uh, get you know just getting people motivated to to really rethink all the different things that they do and why they do them. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And you're, you're really hitting on very good words here. Thank you for that. Uh, a colleague of mine at Hopkins for years, he's now long since retired. His name is Mike Bass, and he was a major in the Baltimore Police Department years ago. He used to lament the fact that many police agencies no longer recruit to the nobility of the profession. That was the very phrase he used. He said a lot, of, a lot of attempts at recruiting now make much more of sort of fundamental job benefits, like, like a nice uniform and what have you. And, and he said just what you said, that when he went to the academy, which was probably in the 60s, I'm not sure how old he'd be now, um, maybe 70s, he said he didn't even think about the money. In fact, there's a story that back then, the very first day of the academy for Baltimore police, uh, a woman would come in with a form for signing up for food stamps because the police were gonna make so little in terms of salary. And many of the police hadn't even given that a thought. You know, they, that, that's not why they were getting into this. Um, so I, I wanna go back to a point uh, that I, I made a few minutes before in response to one of your, your terrific questions. And that is, I think this all starts at recruitment. Mm -hmm. And so what is the agency or the profession saying to the potential cop in its recruitment efforts? Is it saying, look, we got a good job for you, you'll make good money and you'll look spiffy in a uniform? Uh, or is it saying, we want only the most noble of you because this, this profession is absolutely essential uh, to the welfare of our, to the well-being of our society. And, uh, and, and if you blow it, you really hurt a lot of people. So I, I would say that much of this starts at recruitment. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And but the first thought I had when you're talking about recruitment and, and not making a lot of money, um, you know, I, well, I had two points. Uh, you know, I, I, I can think back to when I first started. There are so many times you've heard the phrase, or at least police officers have heard the phrase, I'm getting paid to do this. Like, <laughs> I, I would do this job for free, right? Yes. Uh, but then the second thought that I had is, you know, I just really thought for whatever reason, the Marines popped into my mind because yes. if you look at the way they recruit and what they're recruiting for, you know, it's a brand, it's an, it's a, it's an image more than it is anything else. I mean, you're not going to make a lot of money being, being a Marine. Uh, you're going to get yelled and screamed at and have to do a, uh, a lot of hard work to get to where you are, but, or, or where, where you want to go in, in that, in that uh, track and uh, 
but they get constantly, they get people sign up over and over and over and over and over again, young men and women because of that brand. And so um, it's powerful that, that you know, branding matters. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. And the Marines are an excellent example because they're basically challenging the recruit, right? They're not saying we're begging for people to come in. We'll pay you anything you need. They're saying, are you sure you've got what it takes to be a Marine? And boy, that, that get, I think that hits the right nerve in people because it's a matter of honor. You know, it's a matter of talent. Um, I had mentioned that one, one of the reasons I think policing as a profession is because of it's, it's being inefficient to use your term. And so the moral weight, the moral pressure on a police officer, I think, makes it a profession rather than just a job. But I also think uh, it's a sense of calling. And so I think if for that other point you made, I do this for money. I think it's a big difference. Uh, in the calling, you feel drawn to something because it's going to bring out the best in your talents. And the money is a means to, 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 to doing your professional work, right? And many a job, you take it because of the money you're going to make. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's a different kind of mentality, right? But in a, in a profession, most of you enter it because you feel called to it. And then the money comes along to make sure you can stay in the profession. So I think your, that example you gave where many a police officer will say, boy, I can't even believe, I can't believe I get paid for this is a, is a healthy sign that they felt called to this. Mm-hmm. And there again, both in recruitment and even in uh, training and ongoing education, I think it would be helpful both for the uh, cop him or herself and for the agency and for the profession to distinguish clearly between those who are just in it for the job and those who are in it because they feel called to do it. And um, I must say, so I've been doing this with police, I guess it's about 26 years and and other federal law enforcement and and it's the range from very local to federal. my unscientific observation is there's a huge difference between somebody who's in this for the calling and someone who's in it just for the money. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, as someone who's not in the profession, I think it would be nuts to go in that profession just for the money. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, if, if, if you can make more of the calling openly, and I realize that's kind of a wishy-washy term, but however you want to put it, because I think the Marines are a great analogy then you can keep reminding people that since you've, since you've committed your life to this, don't you want to do it well? Wouldn't, wouldn't you rather do it well than ill? And, and certainly doing it well means doing it morally well, in addition to all the other things we're asking you to do. So that a person who has a full sense of his calling uh, would, would want to be ethical, I think. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Um, can we pivot to, um, you know, change directions a little bit? Uh, you know, are ethics only important in a good, bad option or do, do ethics ever get challenged in, in scenarios that are, you know, good versus good, or, I mean, it doesn't, it's not just this pendulum, uh, of good versus bad, but I mean, there are, is there a range that ethics get challenged? Oh, of course. Yes. Um, we can start with a genuine dilemma, right? We, use, we often use the word dilemma to refer to any difficult moral problem. But a genuine dilemma is one where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. That you have no good choice at this moment. And whatever you do next is going to make a whole lot of people unhappy and may get you in trouble. Um, I think many a dilemma arises just in ordinary life. Given For any of us that has more than one relationship, we have professional relationships and family relationships and friends and neighborhood and church, if that's uh, or if we're religious, one of our religious organizations and so forth. So clearly the biggest challenge is a genuine dilemma where you now face choices that are all unpleasant. Um, the one that's g- going around, you'll, you'll find it all over the place on the web, goes back to an example by Philippa Foote. Philippa Foote was a philosopher. She was a British philosopher who came up with this uh, trolley example. You probably know it. And uh, the, the, the way the story starts is uh, a trolley is tearing down the tracks and 
uh, if it stays on the, that particular track, it will crash and probably all of the people on the trolley will be killed. Um, you have the ability to throw a switch to put the trolley on another track. Now, at, on that track are uh, uh, congregating a number of workers who don't see the trolley coming and probably couldn't be warned in time. But there are fewer people on the track than there are in the trolley. Would you throw the switch and, and uh, kill the congregants on the track, or would you leave the switch as it is and let the people on the trolley die? Well, uh, the first point to that is neither of those is a happy decision. Uh, it, it pretty much sucks either way. Part of the function of that is to get clear on what your own moral starting points are. Do you start with the point, for example, that you should do the greatest good for the greatest number? Or do you start with the point that under no circumstances will you be the agent of somebody's death? So that by not touching the switch, it's not your fault that the train was uh, heading down the wrong track and so forth and so on. Um, so with a genuine dilemma, I still think you can prepare in advance for how to face such a dilemma by getting very clear on what your fundamental moral starting point is and whether that's a good starting point or not. I mean, part of ethics training is taking a critical look at how you think about ethics and, and about, you know, whether maybe you should be thinking about it slightly differently. Um, if, you're, if you're trained for that, then what you realize is sometimes you just have to be prepared to defend your decision afterward. And, and sometimes the best defense available is it was the lesser of two evils. There was nothing good about this. We shouldn't have gotten ourselves in this mess in the first place. That was the real mistake. But once we got ourselves in this mess, we, uh, we only had bad choices. Um, so that one who was trained well ethically might, might be able to see something like that coming so far in advance that he or she can avoid the dilemma in the first place. But if they find themselves in the dilemma, then at least they'll be better prepared to explain it, explain their actions. You know, recognizing this was, this was a choice between evils. This is why I chose this one. And you know, I welcome critical responses, but I'll ask you, what would you have done? And sometimes that's the way to solve the, solve the debate is the other person will have to admit, well, gee, I guess, I guess you're right. In that circumstance, I'm not sure either choice was okay. So, I would, so in terms of your spectrum, I would start with a genuine dilemma where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. The good news about the other kind of dilemma that you mentioned, which is really a pseudo dilemma, where, where all the choices are good ones, is that uh, you know, simplistically, Great. If they're all good, then just pick one and do it. Uh, and then be ready to, if, if you have to defend yourself, say, well, look, this was a good choice and this is why. And so between clear dilemmas where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, uh, on the one hand, and, and those where you have any number of good choices, come a series of real puzzlers. And uh, that's where it seems to me knowing what tools are available in the moral toolbox uh, and knowing how to use them and when to use them will give you a leg up on people who are otherwise caught off guard. But yeah, that, and another way to put it, and I, I think you've put it fine, is the most morally interesting problems are those that exist in the shades of gray. Mm -hmm. You mean the kind of like yeah, the just because we can doesn't mean we should moments? Right. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the habits we should get into, but I think most of us have this habit. So one of the habits we should develop more, more uh, intentionally is looking both backward and forward. Uh, just in case this sort of thing has happened in the past, maybe we can be better prepared for it to happen in the future. And then anticipating what's going to happen in the future. That's, yeah, that's good. It's good stuff. Um, but, you know, Chris, I'm mostly ethical. Um, you know, why, why really do I need to pay that much attention to virtue? And why, why should I always try to make, uh, why should I try to be pitch perfect in, in the virtue discussion? I mean, I, I mostly make good choices. Um, 
Well, there, there's, a, there's a lot of layers to that. There's a lot of layered answers to your question. Um, I guess working backwards, I, I, I would remind myself, especially if I were being too hard on myself, that you mustn't, what's, what's the old expression? You mustn't let the per perfect be the enemy of the good or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that when you, when you go to bed at night, ask yourself, did I do the best I could? And if the answer is yes, then you probably should give yourself uh, a break, take a nice long sleep. Um, if you decide that you probably could have done better, well then figure out how to do better and, and try harder tomorrow. Um, there's also the, the question, so in, the, in terms of the layers of answers, one way to think about this is in terms of all your relationships. And I think that's how you started our conversation was reminding us that um, police officers, anybody, but police officers in this case, have a whole bunch of relationships at once. And uh, there, there's the relationship with themselves and their families and with their constituents and with their agency and with their profession and with the federal government and so forth and so on. Um, wouldn't having committed to a profession that engages those relationships, wouldn't you like to fulfill those commitments as best you can? And uh, it, it, it seems to me that if a person can be reminded periodically that to do less than his best with these commitments is really to harm himself as much as anybody else, because what you're doing is spinning your wheels then. Uh, you know, why waste your time? You've decided to be a cop. Why not do this as well as you can, not only for others' sake, but for your sake? Yeah, that's a great point. So, um, so he, here I am, uh, really wanting to make uh, the best ethical situation I can, and not just in the context of good, but really starting to think about what are my building blocks of of ethics you know maybe maybe focusing a little bit more on virtue and i've and i've really heard you talk about the cardinal virtues and and why they are so you know imperative to this conversation and you know really thinking about the those being the the building blocks of 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 good ethical decisions so can we flesh out uh for our audience you know, to talk about the cardinal virtues and, you know, at least define them and, and what they are to give people a sense of, uh, of direction in this ethical conversation. You bet. Thank you for, thank you for the opportunity. Um, so Aristotle uh, really made this publicly available, this idea publicly available. Uh, he, he didn't invent virtue theory, but he made it clear and applicable and he begins by saying, look, bad people can achieve good consequences. Bad people can obey the rules. Bad people can do their duty. And so when we're talking, and I'm talking morally bad. So when we're talking about morally bad and morally good, it must not be, it must not start with what you've done specifically. It has to start with who you are. Are you a good person or are you a bad person? And a good person is someone who is not only good on the moment, but can be expected to be good. Now we're back to the word habit, right? Mm -hmm. So a good person is somebody who is in the habit of um, knowing what to do and then doing it, knowing the good and doing the good. And uh, out of that comes Aristotle's famous definition of virtue then, which is the ability habitually to know the good and to do the good. Now the good, says Aristotle, at its best would be perfect. And so, and perfection means that there's neither too little nor too much of something. So the good must be the mean between two extremes. Those extremes are too little and too much. Right? So anytime we do wrong, it's either because we didn't do enough or we did too much. So the good becomes what, what history is called the golden mean. I don't know that Aristotle ever used the term golden, but you'll frequently hear references to Aristotle's golden mean. Now, that's already a good starting place for thinking about a moral problem. Any problem you face, um, what are your alternatives? What are your options? Well, some are going to be too deficient. 
Some are going to be extreme. You know, you've, you've stopped somebody for suspicion of drunk driving. Well, if you, had, if you had been on duty and you were suspicious of the drunk driver and you did nothing, that would be too little. That would not have been the morally right response to this situation. If, on the other hand, you just open fire from your window and kill the guy, that's way too much. So somewhere between doing too little and too much must be the right answer. And in the spirit of your um, point about the shades of gray, most people can agree on the extremes. I mean, it seems to me any rational person listening to this would agree that doing absolutely nothing pretending you didn't see the drunk driver would be deficient and drawing your weapon and shooting the guy from your window for, with no other uh, reason would be way too extreme. We, we agree on the extremes usually. It gets more interesting when you get toward the middle, uh, when you get closer and closer to that middle. So you stop the guy and he seems fine, uh, just on your intuition and you're busy. Um, and he's almost home. He's only got three or four blocks to go. All right, go ahead. Well, some of your colleagues would say, no, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. You should have at least given him a road test and what have you. Others would say, fine. You discover it's the police commissioner. And you say, hey, commissioner, sit on the curb. I'm going to call you a taxi. Uh, well, some would say, yeah, that was the right thing to do. And others would say, no, the commissioner is, is a citizen like everyone else, so forth. Um, so even as I'm touting the virtues of virtue theory, I, I want to acknowledge that finding that magic mean can be tricky, but that should be part of the effort of moral training is how to find that mean. Now, there are four specific means that comprise the cardinal virtues that you just mentioned. Cardinal here means hinge. So it's, uh, the, the idea here is on what other virtues, on what four virtues do all virtues hinge? And those are courage, justice, temperance, and prudence or practical wisdom. So courage is the mean between cowardice and foolhardiness. And, and, and we know that many a cop has erred on the side of foolhardiness. We often regard that as heroism, but in looking back, we say, oh wow, I wonder if they could have handled that a little more safely. They're lucky everybody survived. Think of a, of a car chase, for example, that turns out okay. Well, even though it turned out okay, in retrospect, it may have been kind of foolhardy. It's much rarer that we find ourselves accusing police of cowardice, but it's possible, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, the second of the four cardinal virtues is justice. And in simplistic terms, that means giving somebody exactly what the person deserves, no more, no less. So if we severely punish a minor infraction, if say we execute a shoplifter, um, that would be an excessive uh, response. If, on the other hand, we, we have a convicted serial killer and we say, you know what, let's send him home and give him a second chance, that's deficient justice. Um, we want to give somebody exactly what they deserve and we want to be prepared to defend that decision. The third of the four cardinal virtues is um, temperance. Now, we often use that to, in, in English conversation, we often use that to refer to food and drink, but it means in a broader sense, uh, proper use of any available resource. Um, so not using the available resource deficiently and not using it excessively. Um, uh, weapons, for example. Uh, we, when, when we accuse somebody of a bad shoot, we mean they used that weapon when they could have done something uh, less, less aggressive, less lethal. Um, on the other hand, if you fail to draw your weapon when by all your training and by, by all that's holy, you should have drawn it, well, then, then you didn't use your resource enough. So temperance refers to the proper use of any available resource, not just food and drink, but any resource that's available to you at the time you need to solve a problem. Uh, and then finally, prudence or practical wisdom is the mean between acting on insufficient knowledge, leaping before you look on the one hand, and having all the knowledge you need to make the right decision, but failing to make it anyway, which would be excessively prudent. And certainly that's one place training can help a lot because it can, it can teach you a lot uh, to get you prepared. Now, to wrap this point up, one of the original meanings of the word integrity, which is a very common word in police ethics, it's off, you often see it stamped on the sides of police cars, for example, uh, 
means to have integrated those four virtues into your life so that a person who is habitually courageous, just, temperate, and prudent uh, is a person of integrity. Uh, and one final comment. When you were talking a little earlier about the fact that you're a, you're a morally good person, um, but you're not perfect, and none of us is perfect, uh, virtue theory recognizes that. What it's saying is try to develop these habits to the best of your ability, but, but don't, don't beat yourself up for falling short. As, as long as you can count on be, uh, being courageous, just, temperate, and prudent, then, then you're good to go. And of course, you could always be better, but, but you're in the right place. No, I love that, Chris. I mean, it, again, it comes down to balance. I mean, I think life, there's a lot of duality of life, uh, uh, good, bad, up, down, yes, no. Uh, <laughs> but, but I think sometimes it's just at least, ha at least understanding to what degree, uh, you know, why it's important, but what is it that makes it important? And I think those cardinal virtues do that. I mean, if, if, if you just sit and think about it, I think you can be more intentional in every moment and, and have uh, the opportunity to habitually make better decisions. And so I think they're incredibly relative and, and something that if you think about them, and at least not just once, not just think about them today, but routinely practice them or routinely think about them to the point where it just helps elevate those good habits. I agree. And going back to uh, that, that fellow many years ago when I uh, first started doing this work, you know, think, think of it as the moral equivalent of firearms training. It's something you work on all the time. And, you know, it, it, it's uh, uh, the, 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 usually your profession gives plenty of opportunity for that. To, to practice and to get better and better at it. So how can it do the equivalent with integrity? How can it uh, kind of constantly remind you? Uh, and and if, you, if you prefer a different analogy, think of a gym. Um, you know, many cops work out every day on, at, at the gym and many agencies have a gym available. Why not have the moral equivalent of that? And it, it, it can actually be fun you know, to get into a moral debate about a certain case or a certain issue. And in having that debate, you hone your moral skills. And I want to say up front, and you said it, unless somebody's a sociopath or a psychopath, I think nine times out of 10, they already know the right thing to do. So they certainly don't, they don't need some Hopkins professor to tell them. Um, where they really run into problems is, is when they hit that moral brick wall and they go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. And um, that's where I think really promoting this integrity can, can pay off in the long run. Yeah, and I think the, you know, just as you said earlier is, it's the balance, the, 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 the tails of, of, of anything are easy to see, the, the, the extremes. And as we get closer, there's just a lot more room uh, for decisions to be made that, that you might not please everybody or they might be against what should should be going on. I think you the gray area just has a lot more opportunity for uh, for robust discussions and and learning and and figuring out different ways to to skin the cat uh, but also looking at people as a whole. I think sometimes, you know, going back to the original things we talked about, sometimes self-interest, not because you're just trying to be a complete bad person, but, you know, self-interest, you might forget about the little guy and make decisions that on policies or procedures or uh, assignments that, you know, you're really not taking all the information in and, um, you know, it, it, it puts people in a bad spot. So, yes. Yeah, one, one precept that I don't think gets enough uh, play, and I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody of not giving it enough play, is the golden rule, right? I mean, it's, a, it's not a bad place to start, and again, unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath, um, to ask yourself, gee, would I want to be treated that way? And right. at the end, no, then probably you ought not to be treating others that way. It's, it's, it's not a bad place to start. I'm sort of convinced, again, I'm being very unscientific, 
that there's actually something evolutionary about the golden rule in us. And it's almost like we're born hardwired to understand that. Um, it, it just, it comes so readily to us that sometimes we don't even realize we're calling it up. But I think our capacity to see the wrong in somebody else's suffering, that's something apparently even babies have. Um, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, A, let's not forget the golden rule, and B, boy, that's, a, that's a, an easy-to-use tool in the moral toolbox, right? And it's readily available. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the old saying, keep it simple, right? And yes. um, it, I don't think it gets any more simplistic than that, because I think, realistically, just like you said, I, I, I completely agree. I think there's a, a natural law of reciprocity that happens when you make good decisions to other people, and then they feel good that they're more prone to making good decisions. And um, I think there was a commercial a, 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 a number of years ago where, you know, somebody picks up a baby's bottle and hands it to the mom. And it, it, it's this whole chain of reaction of good deeds that happen because of this one person. I oh, think neat. people are naturally interested in, in helping one another or at least transferring the same energy that was given to them. Yes. Boy, that's well put. I, I think you're right. And uh, one thing I haven't done enough, and, I'm, uh, and I should, uh, so this is a shortcoming of mine, I really focus pretty squarely on, on the, the logic of ethics and, and the, the logical thinking behind moral judgments. And I do think that's very important. But I sometimes fail to pay enough attention to the gut. And I think you can train the gut as well to be uh, you can train, I'm using that term badly. You can, you can hone your intuitions as well. You're, you're more, you're, you're sort of, uh, emotional, uh, responses to things as well as your logical responses. And there, there are some people in the history of the study of ethics who really tried to drive that point home. So in the 18th century, David Hume and Adam Smith, for example, both said that ethics really starts in your gut, not in your head. That, that your, first, your first moral reactions tend to be uh, emotional reactions. And then you go looking to logic to help you explain or defend. So uh, I don't think one ought to discount those sorts of impulses that you were describing. Um, there seems to be some moral hardwiring in, in us, in any of us who's not a sociopath or a psychopath. Right? Mm -hmm. That's good stuff, really good stuff. So, so Chris, you've inspired me to at least think about ethics. Um, you know, where, where do you think if, if I wanted to do some more reading or, or, or just get more educated, I, you know, I want to dig a little bit deeper on this topic beyond, beyond our conversation. Where, where would you point me? Well, there are lots of, in terms of a bibliography, uh, one one book that's kind of the Bible of police ethics is uh, Ed Delatra's. Uh, I think it's, I think it's called Character and Cops or Cops and Character. I think it's Character and Cops. Mm -hmm. um, that really is is sort of the Bible of police ethics. Um, I'm happy, incidentally, for anybody who wants it. And it might be easier for me to send you a copy, and then you can do with it what you will. I had done a uh, textbook for McGraw Hill back in 2009 called Ethics and Criminal Justice. And I'm happy to make available that uh, a publisher's proof electronically at no cost. You know, I, I don't want anybody to have to go spend money on this thing. But um, that, in addition to laying out much of the theory that you and I just talked about, it has about 30 cases or so, uh, some of which are now pretty dated, but some of which are enduring. Um, any uh, sort of introduction to ethics, I think, would be worth reading. Most of them are good enough. Um, probably the biggest challenge there is that the authors, and I'm guilty of this as well, have their favorite vocabularies and their favorite theories. So um, a person who read several of those books at once might find it a little confusing. But um, that's, that's where I would begin is with, with a bibliography of that sort. And then once you start taking a look at any one of those, you begin to see names emerging that uh, you might want to pursue, uh, names of authors, and you might want to pursue their articles uh, more readily. And um, so there are a lot of different ways to do this that, that can be fun and not overwhelming. But that's, 
that's sort of where I would start is with a, a couple of books and see what parts of those books really um, whet your appetite for further study. Yeah, that's great. No, uh, God bless you for your, that, that gracious generosity. We, uh, uh, we're always trying to look for ways to help people stretch and uh, yeah, we, I'd love, I'd love to read that personally. So thank you. I'll email it to you. Sure. And then if, and then feel free to send it to anybody else you want to, or to make it available perhaps at, at some sort of common website. I think California post has it. Uh, I'm pretty sure um, among others, but um, yeah, I like to make that available as available as possible uh, because it sort of takes all the thought I just threw at you and puts it down more systematically. Great. Um, you have anything else you'd like to share with our audience today? Only, I guess, that I want, um, especially if most of your audience is police, I, I want you to know just how deeply grateful I am. Um, I, I don't think you get fair press these days, and I don't think you have for many, many years. Um, the ones who get the press are the, you know, the bad people. And I, I just think it's remarkable that someone would choose this uh, as a profession. You know, I, I think there's a heroism merely in the choice. You know, once you're on the job, you'll do things that to the ordinary civilian would be a hero, would be heroic, but they're just part of your job. But having chosen this job, I think, makes you a hero. And the downside, I suppose, of that, or the tough side, is, as you said earlier, Brian, by, by stepping into this profession, you stepped into the fishbowl. And you, you assumed a whole lot of moral commitment that you might not even be aware of. Mm -hmm. well, I, I thank you for that, Chris. Uh, you know, I'm humbled every day, uh, especially in the last n number of years where police have taken on a tremendous uh, load of scrutiny. But I'm reminded every day just how, how much people appreciate the work that we do. And there's so many good people out there that, that do stop you on the street or uh, when you're having a break, uh, make themselves available and, 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 and say thank you. And, um, you know, there's a lot of humbling moments in this career and it's, you know, it's, it's definitely to energizes you uh, through your, throughout the day or, um, or sometimes carries you for, for many weeks. Uh, and then there's those impacting moments that are, that are, that are lifelong. So I, I really do appreciate that. So um, that's a wrap for us. Uh, I, I appreciate you joining us. I, I wish you well. And if uh, people want to find you, uh, do you have a particular website or, or any other contact information? Uh, yeah, right now I'll just give you my email address. Uh, um, I'm also on LinkedIn, but I need to flesh that out a little bit. The people can feel free to look on LinkedIn, but there's not a lot there. My email address is my last name, Dreisbach, D-R-E-I-S-B-A-C-H, at J-H-U dot E-D-U. Awesome. Well, I hope we've... Uh... We've inspired people to, to seek more information, to, uh, uh, to, just, to just to get better and, and to flex their ethical muscles. And once again, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, my, my, it's my honor, Ryan, and my pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, have a great day. You too. Be well. Thanks again for listening to our show today. And as always, we encourage your feedback. You can provide that feedback and my email at bellis at commandcollege.org. As always, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Figure out who you are and be purposeful. Be well. Thank you so much for tuning into the Badgecast One podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with a colleague. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Statement and views on this podcast are those of the guests, and the opinions of the guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse 
or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representation or warranties about guests or qualifications or credibility. This podcast is the product of the National Command and Staff College, copyright 2010 to 2035. Any use of this without the express consent of the National Command and Staff College is strictly prohibited by law. For more information, email us at info at commandcollege.org.